Chapter 2 Necessary Meditations on the Actual, Including the Mean Bread and Cheese Question, dissipated the phantasmal for a while, and compelled Jude to smother higher thinkings under immediate needs. He had to get up and seek for work, manual work, the only kind deemed by many of its professors to be work at all. Passing out onto the streets on this errand, he found the colleges had treacherously changed their sympathetic countenances. Some were pompous. Some had put on the look of family vaults above ground. Something barbaric loomed in the masonries of all. The spirits of the great men had disappeared. The numberless architectural pages around him he read, naturally, less as an artist critic of their forms than as an artisan and comrade of the dead hand craftsmen whose muscles had actually executed those forms. He examined the moldings, stroked them as one who knew their beginning, said they were difficult or easy in the working, had taken little or much time, were trying to the arm or convenient to the tool. What at night had been perfect and ideal was, by day, more or less defective real cruelties, insults, had he perceived, been inflicted on the aged erections. The condition of several moved him as he would have been moved by maimed sentient beings. They were wounded, broken, sloughing off their outer shape in the deadly struggle against years, weather, and man. The rottenness of these historical documents reminded him that he was not, after all, hastening on to begin the morning practically as he had intended. He had come to work, and to live by work, and the morning had nearly gone. It was, in one sense, encouraging to think that in a place crumbling stones, there must be plenty for one of his trade to do in the business of renovation. He asked his way into the workyard of the stonemason whose name had been given him at Alfredston, and soon heard the familiar sound of the rubbers and chisels. The yard was a little center of regeneration. Here, with keen edges and smooth curves, were forms in the exact likeness of those he had seen abraded and time-eaten on the walls. These were the ideas in modern prose, which the lichened colleges presented in old poetry. Even some of those antiques might have been called prose when they were new. They had done nothing but wait, and had become poetical. How easy to the smallest building, how impossible to most men. He asked for the foreman and looked round among the new traceries, mullions, transoms, shafts, pinnacles, the battlements standing on the bankers half-worked or waiting to be removed. They were marked by precision, mathematical straightness, smoothness, exactitude. There in the old walls were the broken lines of the original idea, jagged curves, disdain of precision, irregularity, disarray. For a moment there fell on Jude a true illumination, that here in the stoneyard was a center of efforts as worthy as that dignified by the name of scholarly study within the noblest of the colleges. But he lost it under stress of his old idea. He would accept any employment which might be offered to him on the strength of his late employer's recommendation, but he would accept it as a provisional thing only. This was his form of the modern vice of unrest. Moreover, he perceived that, at best, only copying, patching, and imitating went on here, 
which he fancied to be owing to some temporary and local cause. He did not at that time see that medievalism was as dead as a fern leaf in a lump of coal, that other developments were shaping in the world around him, in which Gothic architecture and its associations had no place. The deadly animosity of contemporary logic and vision toward so much of what he held in reverence was not yet revealed to him. Having failed to obtain work here, as yet he went away, and thought again of his cousin, whose presence somewhere at hand he seemed to feel in wavelets of interest, if not of emotion. How he wished he had that pretty portrait of her. At last he wrote to his aunt to send it. She did so with the request, however, that he was not to bring disturbance into the family by going to see the girl or her relations. Jude, a ridiculously affectionate fellow, promised nothing, put the photograph on the mantelpiece, kissed it, he did not know why, and felt more at home. She seemed to look down and preside over his tea. It was cheering, the one thing uniting him to the emotions of the living city. There remained the schoolmaster, probably now a reverend parson, but he could not possibly hunt up such a respectable man just yet. So raw and unpolished was his condition, so precarious were his fortunes. Thus, he still remained in loneliness. Although people moved around him, he virtually saw none. Not as yet having mingled with the active life of the place, it was largely non-existent to him. But the saints and prophets in the window tracery, the paintings in the galleries, the statues, the busts, the gargoyles, the corbel heads, these seemed to breathe his atmosphere. Like all newcomers to a spot on which the past is deeply graven, he heard that past announcing itself with an emphasis altogether unsuspected by, and even incredible to, the habitual residents. For many days he haunted the cloisters and quadrangles of the colleges at odd minutes in passing them, surprised by impish echoes of his own footsteps, smart as the blows of a mallet. The Christmaster sentiment, as it had been called, ate further and further into him, till he probably knew more about these buildings materially, artistically, and historically than any one of their inmates. It was not till now when he found himself actually on the spot of his enthusiasm, that Jude perceived how far away from the object of that enthusiasm he really was. Only a wall divided him from those happy young contemporaries of his with whom he shared a common mental life. Men who had nothing to do from morning till night but to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. Only a wall. But what a wall! Every day, every hour, as he went in search of labor, he saw them going and coming also, rubbed shoulders with them, heard their voices, marked their movements. The conversation of some of the more thoughtful among them seemed oftentimes, owing to his long and persistent preparation for this place, to be, to be peculiarly akin to his own thoughts. Yet he was as far from them as if he had been at the Antipodes. Of course he was. He was a young workman, in a white blouse, and with stone dust in the creases of his clothes. And in passing him, they did not even see him, or hear him, rather saw through him, as through a pane of glass, at their familiars beyond. Whatever they were to him, he to them was not on the spot at all. And yet he had fancied he would be close to their lives by coming here. But the future lay ahead, after all 
and if he could only be so fortunate as to get into good employment, he would put up with the inevitable. So he thanked God for his health and strength, and took courage. For the present, he was outside the gates of everything, colleges included. Perhaps some day he would be inside, those palaces of light and leading. He might some day look down on the world through their pains. At length, he did receive a message from the stonemason's yard that a job was waiting for him. It was his first encouragement, and he closed with the offer promptly. He was young and strong, or he never could have executed with such zest the undertakings to which he now applied himself, since they involved reading most of the night after working all the day. First, he bought a shaded lamp at four and sixpence and obtained a good light. Then he got pens, paper, and such other necessary books as he had been unable to obtain elsewhere. Then, to the consternation of his landlady, he shifted all of the furniture of his room, a single one for living and sleeping, rigged up a curtain on a rope across the middle to make a double chamber out of one, hung up a thick blind that nobody should know how he was curtailing the hours of sleep, laid out his books, and sat down. Having been deeply encumbered by marrying, getting a cottage, and buying the furniture which had disappeared in the wake of his wife, he had never been able to save any money since the time of those disastrous ventures, until his wages began to come in, he was obliged to live in the narrowest way. After buying a book or two, he could not even afford himself a fire, and when the nights reeked with the raw and cold air from the meadows, he sat over his lamp in a great coat, hat, and woolen gloves. From his window he could perceive the spire of the cathedral, and the ogee dome under which resounded the great bell of the city, the tall tower, tall belfry, windows, and tall pinnacles of the college by the bridge he could also get a glimpse of by going to the staircase. These objects he used as stimulants when his faith in the future was dim. Like enthusiasts in general, he made no inquiries into details of procedure. Picking up general notions from casual acquaintance, he never dwelt upon them. For the present, he said to himself, the one thing necessary was to get ready by accumulating money and knowledge, and await whatever chances were afforded to such an one of becoming a son of the university. For wisdom is a defense, and money is a defense, but the excellency of knowledge is, that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. His desire absorbed him, and left no part of him to weigh its practicability. At this time, he received a nervously anxious letter from his poor old aunt on the subject which had previously distressed her, a fear that Jude would not be strong-minded enough to keep away from his cousin Sue Bridehead and her relations. Sue's father, his aunt believed, had gone back to London, but the girl remained at Christminster. To make her still more objectionable, she was an artist or designer of some sort, in which was called an ecclesiastical warehouse, which was a perfect seedbed of idolatry and she was no doubt abandoned to mummeries on that account, if not quite a papist. Miss Drusilla Folly was, of her date, evangelical. As Jude was rather on an intellectual track than on a theological, the news of Sue's probable opinions did not much influence him one way or the other, but the clue to her whereabouts was decidedly interesting. With an altogether singular pleasure, he walked at his earliest spare minutes, past the shops answering to his great-aunt's description, and beheld in one of them a young girl sitting behind a desk, 
who was suspiciously like the original of the portrait. He ventured to enter in on a trivial errand, and having made his purchase, lingered on the scene. The shop seemed to be kept entirely by women. It contained angelican books, stationery, texts, and fancy goods, little plaster angels on brackets, gothic framed pictures of saints, ebony crosses that were almost crucifixes, prayer books that were almost missiles. He felt very shy of looking at the girl in the desk. She was so pretty that he could not believe it possible that she should belong to him. Then she spoke to one of the two older women behind the counter, and he recognized in the accents certain qualities of his own voice, softened and sweetened, but his own. What was she doing? He stole a glance around. Before her lay a piece of zinc, cut to the shape of a scroll three or four feet long, and coated with a dead surface paint on one side. Hereon she was designing or illuminating in characters of church text the single word, Alleluia. A sweet, saintly Christian business, hers, thought he. Her presence here was now fairly enough explained, her skill in work of this sort having no doubt been acquired from her father's occupation as an ecclesiastical worker in metal. The lettering on which she was engaged was clearly intended to be fixed up in some chancel to assist devotion. He came out. It would have been easy to speak to her there and then, but it seemed scarcely honorable towards his aunt to disregard her request so incontinently. She had used him roughly, but she had brought him up, and the fact of her being powerless to control him lent a pathetic force to a wish that would have been inoperative as an argument. So Jude gave no sign. He would not call upon Sue just yet. He had other reasons against doing so when he had walked away. She seemed so dainty beside himself in his rough working jacket and dusty trousers that he felt he was as yet unready to encounter her as he had felt about Mr. Philotston. And how possible it was that she had inherited the antipathies of her family and would scorn him as far as a Christian could, particularly when he had told her that his unpleasant part of his history, which resulted in his becoming enchanted to one of her own sex, whom she would certainly not admire. Thus he kept watch over her, and liked to feel she was there. The consciousness of her living presence stimulated him, but she remained more or less an ideal character about whose form he began to weave curious and fantastic daydreams. Between two and three weeks afterwards, Jude was engaged with some more men outside Crozier College in Old Time Street in getting a block of worked freestone from a wagon across the pavement before hoisting it to the paperet which they were repairing. Standing in position, the headman said, Spike when he heave! Eho! And they heaved. All of a sudden, as he lifted, his cousin stood close to his elbow, pausing a moment on the bend of her foot till the obstructing object should have been removed. She looked right into his face with liquid, untranslatable eyes that combined, or seemed to him to combine, keenness with tenderness, and mystery with both. Their expression, as well as that of her lips, taking its life from some words just spoken to a companion, and being carried on to his face quite unconsciously. She no more observed his presence than that of the dust motes which his manipulations raised into the sunbeams. 
His closeness to her was so suggestive that he trembled and turned his face away with a shy instinct to prevent her recognizing him, though as she had never once seen him, she could not possibly do so, and might very well never have even heard his name. He could perceive that though she was a country girl at bottom, a latter girlhood of some years in London, and a womanhood here had taken all the rawness out of her. When she was gone, he continued his work, reflecting on her. He had been so caught by her influence that he had taken no count of her general mold and build. He remembered now that she was not a large figure, that she was light and slight, the type dubbed elegant. That was about all he had seen. There was nothing statuesque in her. She was all nervous motion. She was mobile, living, yet a painter might not have called her handsome or beautiful but the much that she was surprised him. She was quite a long way removed from the rusticity that was his. How could one of his cross-gained, unfortunate, almost accursed stock have contrived to reach this pitch of niceness? London had done it, he supposed. From this moment the emotion which had been accumulating in his breast as the bottled-up effect of solitude and the poetized locality he dwelt in insensibly began to precipitate itself on this half-visionary form, and he perceived that, whatever his obedient wish, in the contrary direction, he would soon be unable to resist the desire to make himself known to her. The first reason was that he was married, and it would be wrong. The second was that they were cousins. It was not well for cousins to fall in love, even when circumstances seemed to favor the passion. The third... Even were he free, in a family like his own, where marriage usually meant a tragic sadness, marriage with a blood relation would duplicate the adverse conditions, and a tragic sadness might be intensified to a tragic horror. Therefore, again he would have to think of Sue with only a relation's mutual interest in one belonging to him. Regard her in a practical way, as someone to be proud of, to talk and nod to, later on, to be invited to tea by, the emotion spent on her being rigorously that of a kinsman and well-wisher. So would she be to him a kindly star, an elevating power, a companion in Angelican worship, a tender friend? Chapter 3 But under the various deterrent influences, Jude's instinct was to approach her timidly, and the next Sunday he went to the morning service in the Cathedral Church of Cardinal College to gain a further view of her, for he had found that she frequently attended there. She did not come, and he awaited her in the afternoon, which was finer. He knew that if she came at all, she would approach the building along the eastern side of the great green quadrangle from which it was accessible, and he stood in a corner while the bell was going. A few minutes before the hour for service, she approached as one of the figures walking along under the college walls, and at sight of her, he advanced upon the side opposite, and followed her into the building, more than ever glad that he had not, as yet, revealed himself. He lingered a while in the vestibule, and the service was some way advanced when he was put into a seat. It was a luring, mournful, still afternoon when a religion of some sort seems a necessity to ordinary, practical men, and not only a luxury of the emotional and leisured classes. In the dim light and the baffling glare of the clerestory windows, he could discern the opposite worshippers indistinctly only, but he saw that Sue was among them. 
He had not long discovered the exact seat that she had occupied when the chanting of the 119th psalm in which the choir was engaged reached its second part. In Quo Corrigit, the organ changing to a pathetic Gregorian tune as the singers gave forth, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? It was this very question that was engaging Jude's attention at this moment. What a wicked, worthless fellow he had been to give vent as he had done to an animal passion for a woman and allow it to lead to such disastrous consequences, then to think of putting an end to himself, then to go recklessly and get drunk. The great waves of pedal music tumbled around the choir and, nursed on the supernatural as he had been, it is not wonderful that he could hardly believe that the psalm was not especially set by some regardful providence for this moment of his first entry into the solemn building. And yet, it was the ordinary psalm for the twenty-fourth evening of the month. The girl for whom he was beginning to nourish an extraordinary tenderness was at this time inspired by the same harmonies as those which floated into his ears, and the thought was a delight to him. She was probably a frequenter of this place, and, steeped body and soul in church sentiment as she must be by occupation and habit, had, no doubt, much in common with him. To an impressionable and lonely young man, the consciousness of having at last found anchorage for his thoughts, which promised to supply both social and spiritual possibilities, was like the dew of Hermon, and he remained throughout the service in a sustaining atmosphere of ecstasy. Though he was loath to suspect it, some people might have said to him that the atmosphere blew as distinctly from Cyprus as from Galilee. Jude waited till she had left her seat and passed under the screen before he himself moved. She did not look towards him, and by the time he reached the door she was halfway down the broad path. Being dressed up in his Sunday suit, he was inclined to follow her and reveal himself. But he was not quite ready, and, alas, ought he to do so with the kind of feeling that was awakening in him? For though it had seemed to have an ecclesiastical basis during the service, and he had persuaded himself that such was the case, he could not altogether be blind to the real nature of the magnetism. She was such a stranger that the kinship was affection, and he said, It can't be, I, a man with a wife, must not know her. Still, Sue was his own kin, and the fact of his having a wife, even though she was not in evidence in this hemisphere, might be a help in one sense. It would put all thought of a tender wish on his part out of Sue's mind, and make her intercourse with him free and fearless. It was with some heartache that he saw how little he cared for the freedom and fearlessness that would result in her from such knowledge. Some little time before the date of the service in the cathedral, the pretty, liquid-eyed, light-footed young woman, Sue Bridehead, had an afternoon's holiday, and leaving the ecclesiastical establishment in which she not only assisted but lodged, took a walk into the country with a book in her hand. It was one of those cloudless days, which sometimes occur in Wessex and elsewhere between the days of cold and wet, as if intercalcated by caprice of the weather god. She went along for a mile or two until she came to much higher ground than that of the city she had left behind her. The road passed between green fields, and coming to a stile, Sue paused there to finish the page she was reading, 
and then looked back at the towers and domes and pinnacles, new and old. On the other side of the stile, in the footpath, she beheld a foreigner with black hair and a sallow face, sitting on the grass beside a large square board whereon were fixed, as closely as they could stand, a number of plaster silhouettes, some of them bronzed, which he was rearranging before proceeding with them on his way. They were in the main reduced copies of ancient marbles, and comprised divinities of a very different character from those the girl was accustomed to seeing portrayed, among them being a Venus of standard pattern, a Diana, and, of the other sex, Apollo, Bacchus, and Mars. Though the figures were many yards away from her, the southwest sun brought them out so brilliantly against the green herbage that she could discern their contours with luminous distinctness, and being almost in line between herself and the church towers of the city, they awoke in her an oddly foreign and contrasting set of ideas by comparison. The man rose, and seeing her, politely took off his cap and cried, Images! in an accent that agreed with his appearance. In a moment, he dexterously lifted upon his knee the great board with its assembled notabilities, divine and human, and raised it to the top of his head, bringing them on to her and resting the board on the stile. First, he offered her his smaller wares, the busts of kings and queens, then a minstrel, then a winged cupid. She shook her head. How much are these two? she said, touching with her finger the Venus and the Apollo, the largest figures on the tray. He said she could have them for ten shillings. I cannot afford that, said Sue. She offered considerably less, and to her surprise the image man drew them from their wire stay and handed them over the stile. She clasped them as treasures. When they were paid for and the man had gone, she began to be concerned as to what she should do with them. They seemed so very large now that they were in her possession, and so very naked. Being of a nervous temperament, she trembled at her enterprise. When she handled them, the white pipe clay came off on her gloves and jacket. After carrying them along a little way openly, an idea came to her, and pulling some huge burdock leaves, parsley, and other rank growths from the hedge, she wrapped up her burden as well as she could in these, so that what she carried appeared to be an enormous armful of green stuff gathered by a zealous lover of nature. Well, anything is better than those everlasting church fellows, she said, but she was still in a trembling state and seemed almost to wish that she had not bought the figures. Occasionally peeping inside the leaves to see that Venus's arm was not broken, she entered with her heathen load into the most Christian city in the country by an obscure street running parallel to the main one, and round a corner to the side door of the establishment to which she was attached. Her purchases were taken straight up to her own chamber, and she at once attempted to lock them in a box that was her very own property, but finding them too cumbersome, she wrapped them in large sheets of brown paper and stood them on the floor in a corner. The mistress of the house, Miss Frontover, was an elderly lady in spectacles, dressed almost like an abbess, a dab at ritual, as became one of her business, and a worshipper at the ceremonial church of St. Silas, in the suburb of Beersheba, before mentioned, which Jude had also begun to attend. She was the daughter of a clergyman in reduced circumstances, and at his death, which had occurred several years before this date, 
she boldly avoided penury by taking over a little shop of church requisites and developing it to its present creditable proportions. She wore a cross and beads around her neck as her only ornament and knew the Christian year by heart. She now came to call Sue to tea, and finding that the girl did not respond for a moment, entered the room just as the other was hastily putting a string round each parcel. "'Something you've been buying, Miss Bridehead?' she asked, regarding the enwrapped objects. "'Yes, just something to ornament my room,' said Sue. "'Well, I should have thought I had put enough here already,' said Miss Fontover, looking round at the Gothic-framed prints of saints the church text scrolls, and other articles which, having become too stale to sell, had been used to furnish this obscure chamber. What is it? How bulky! She tore a little hole about as big as a wafer in the brown paper and tried to peep in. Why statuary? Two figures? Where did you get them? Oh, I bought them off a traveling man who sells casts. Two saints? Yes. What ones? St. Peter and St. Saint, St. Mary Magdalene. Well, now come down to tea and go and finish that organ text if there's light enough afterwards. These little obstacles to the indulgence of what had been the merest passing fancy created in Sue a great zest for unpacking her objects and looking at them. And at bedtime, when she was sure of being undisturbed, she unrobed the divinities in comfort. Placing the pair of figures on the chest of drawers, a candle on each side of them, she withdrew to the bed, flung herself down thereon, and began reading a book she had taken from her box, which Miss Fontover knew nothing of. It was a volume of Gibbon, and she read the chapter dealing with the reign of Julian the Apostate. Occasionally she looked up at the statuettes, which appeared strange and out of place, there happening to be a cavalry print hanging between them, and as if the scene suggested the action. She at length jumped up and withdrew another book from her box, a volume of verse, and turned to the familiar poem. Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean, the world has grown gray from thy breath, which she read to the end. Presently, she put out the candles, undressed, and finally extinguished her own light. She was of an age which usually sleeps soundly, Yet tonight she kept waking up, and every time she opened her eyes, there was enough diffused light from the street to show her the white plaster figures, standing on the chest of drawers in odd contrast to their environment of text and martyr, and the gothic-framed crucifix picture that was only discernible now as a Latin cross, the figure thereon being obscured by the shades. On one of these occasions, the church clocks struck some small hour. It fell upon the ears of another person who sat bending over his books at a not very distant spot in the same city. Being Saturday night, the morrow was one on which Jude had not set his alarm clock to call him at his usual time, and hence he had stayed up, as was his custom, two or three hours later than could be afforded to do on any other day of the week. Just then he was earnestly reading from his Grishbox text. At the very same time that Sue was tossing and staring at her fingers, the policemen and belated citizens passing along under his window might have heard, if they had stood still, strange syllables mumbled with fervor within, words that had for Jude an indescribable enchantment, inexplicable sounds of something like these. 
All hemen haste de opater, ex how to pana, ke hemes de auton. Till the sounds rolled with reverent loudness, as a book was heard to close. Ke heis, curios isos Christos, de how to panta kai, hemes de auto.